Well, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 22, continuing to look at the arguments for why Christ is greater. And we have been looking at this passage, these verses, for several weeks now and taking each little section week by week and looking at each argument one by one. And we'll do that again this morning. And each week we have been reminded of what we have in Christ and how in Christ we lack nothing. And the context for these arguments has come in the context of comparing Christ to the Old Testament priesthood and the laws that governed the priesthood. Whereas they were temporal, Christ is eternal. Whereas they could not accomplish their end, Christ has accomplished His mission and accomplished our salvation. And so this morning we begin to focus on another aspect of why Christ is better. The law that governed the Old Testament that governed Old Testament Israel, never gave the Israelites a true hope. But Jesus, the better, the eternal, the all-powerful high priest, brings us a better hope, a true hope, a sure hope, an everlasting hope. Let me tell you why we keep repeating this same theme. The first reason is because it's in the text of Scripture. But the second reason is this, is because we instinctively always get these two things wrong, law and gospel. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, He who understands the distinction between the law and the gospel is a doctor. Let us be doctors. And let us get the distinction correct between the law and the gospel, because if not, we have no hope. But the Scripture tells us that in Christ we can have a better hope. Let us hear the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 through 22. This is God's Word. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without 
an oath. But this one who was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And this is the word of God. And may he bless the reading of it as we see beginning in verse 18 all the way through verse 22. We have a series of arguments of why Christ is better. And this morning we see that Christ is better because in Christ we have a better hope. And the reason why we have a better hope, the argument begins in verse 18. And that verses 18 and 19 will be our focus this morning. The reason why we have a better hope is starts off in verse 18 because of the weakness of the law. And that's what we have to see. There was a weakness in the law. Now this is a conclusion to what had already began in earlier verses. In verse 12, we read this, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And so when we get to verse 18, it really makes this implicit here, where we read, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And so the idea of a temporary law to, to, to govern Israel so that they would have a priesthood is introduced as being something that has been set aside, something that could not make them perfect. And so this introduces the fact that the law was transitory. That is to say, the law to govern God's people in sacrifice, in ceremonies, it was for the purpose, it was for a purpose which was to shadow or to present a type of what was to come. In other words, those laws that instructed the priesthood were a shadow, but they were not the substance. They pointed forward to something, but they itself were not it. They were a type. It was the picture, but not the reality. And these verses make three points. I want you to notice what they make in verses 18 and 19. The first is that this commandment was set aside the second is the argument of the weakness and uselessness of that law. And then the third was the argument is that the law made nothing perfect. So let's look at each three of those points so we can then understand the text. It first says that they were set aside. And so that means it was given for a purpose and that purpose has arrived, and because that purpose has arrived, it's no longer intact, it's set aside. Some translations speak of it disannulled or annulled. And that means this is the act of officially or legally canceling something. And the grammar is crucial here. It's literally the former commandment has been set aside. And you might ask, well, what, what commandment was that? Well, our context is about the priesthood. It's directly referring to the commandment on priest and how they were to be set up, how they were to be, what they were supposed to do, and what their job was. In Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, you have a prescription for offerings and how offerings were to be done. And as if you read through 
Leviticus 1 through 7, and if you're doing your yearly Bible reading, you should have already read through that. What you'll remember in reading those first seven chapters in Leviticus is that it's describing in rather great detail of how they were to do sacrifices, how they were to perform their ceremonies. But as you're reading those, you have to be wondering, well, who is going to do that? It keeps talking about the priest who's going to do these sacrifices, the priest who's going to lead these ceremonies. And then when you get to chapters 8 and 9 of Leviticus, then all of a sudden the, 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 the answer comes. This is who the priesthood is going to be. It's going to be those of the tribe of Levi. And more specifically, it's going to be the sons of Aaron. And you see in Leviticus 18 and or Leviticus 8 and 9 of Aaron, that's Moses' brother. You see Aaron and his sons being set aside, being ordained for the priesthood. They're commanded by God with instructions and how that is supposed to be a lasting ordinance about how the priesthood would be put in place. This is set aside. Now, it's interesting because I know... Um, we, we all, myself included, struggle reading some of those first five books of the, the Old Testament. But what's, what's crucial is actually that, that phrase there, set aside, is dependent actually on understanding some of those things, isn't it? What was set aside? And so that causes us to go back into God's Word and ask what was set aside. Well, what was set aside were those instructions for the priesthood. And the words has become means this, this has become a new thing. We have entered into a new era. If the law could be set aside because we have entered into a new era, that does beg the question, why did God give it in the first place? You see, God gave it for a season, for a purpose, to point forward to something greater that he would do. And God does that, by the way. God makes laws, and then later those laws are not intact. What do I mean? Well, for instance, there was a very strict Levitical code for how you would eat. Jesus declares all foods clean. That's why we enjoy bacon. We are able to eat a certain way because God has made a law for a specific time. It's called a positive law. We're no longer commanded not to eat of certain trees, as Adam was commanded not to eat of a tree. That was called a positive law. God gives laws for a season, and those laws are holy while they're given because God gave it and God demanded that they be kept. But then God can set those aside because God's the lawgiver. The law itself, in the case of the priesthood, or let's say in the case of dietary laws, those are not inherently good or evil. They were given by God for a certain period of time. God does this. This is why we read in the second thing, not only are they set aside, but there's a weakness and uselessness in them. And that sounds rather harsh, but that's the language God uses. The weakness literally means this, that it, it lacked the power to accomplish something. 
This commandment that's been set aside, it lacked the power to accomplish something. And then in terms of the the word uselessness, it means there was no vantage point found in it. You know, this word uselessness, it's the same word as used in Titus when it speaks of where Paul is telling Titus, don't waste time in arguing over foolish controversy. It's useless. That's what that word useless means. There's no advantage to it. The Geneva Study Bible translates it this way, that there's no virtue, there's no profit in it. And the result of that is this, is that the law made nothing perfect. And that's what it's stated here. That's why there was a weakness in it. There was a uselessness in it because the law made nothing perfect. And it's interesting, it speaks specifically of the commandment. First, you'll notice, it speaks of setting aside the former commandment. Then when you get into verse 19, it says, for the law, now it's speaking of something broader, the law made nothing perfect. It, it, there's a slight shift there, which again, we have to ask the question, what law? Now, John Owen, the great Puritan, he says this is referring to the whole law as a whole. He writes this, pull one pin out of the fabric and the whole must fall to the ground. He says this refers to the whole law. Now you might be thinking, wait, I've heard you talk about the law in a different way. Are you contradicting yourself? If you've been around long enough, you know that we teach here and believe here that the New Testament clearly teaches that the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, is still applicable today. That it's eternal. It's actually the law flowing from the nature of God Himself. It's the law that's embedded upon the heart of every single human being, God's law, that that moral law of God's. So what does it mean here that when we read this? Because I do believe not only the Ten Commandments is eternal, but that it also serves as a way of guidance for the Christian. In fact, I think that the Ten Commandments is something we ought to hold. So what does this mean that the law is weak and useless and that it could make nothing perfect? It means this in terms of being efficacious of bringing us near to God. That's what it means. That your keeping of the law cannot bring you near to God. Your keeping of the law cannot put you in God's presence. Your keeping of the law and your ability to keep the law, in that sense, the law makes nothing perfect. In that sense, the law is weak and useless. It can't accomplish that. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 2.15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he created in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. 
In other words, we're brought near to God through the blood of Christ, not by the keeping of the law, because you just can't do it. Romans chapter 10, verse 4 says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And our context here is regarding the priesthood. A priest was put in place to bring a worshiper into the presence of, of, of God. And so what the text teaches us is that the law is actually incapable of bringing us into the presence of God. Now, a couple of sermons back, just as a review, we looked at how the law was temporary. And we came up with these two points. The law, number one, cannot save you. And two, the law cannot sanctify us. It is incapable of achieving those two things. Because as the confession says, it requires perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience. How many of you, how many of us can keep perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience? That's what's required of it. To save you. To sanctify you. To bring you into the presence of God. And not only can we not do it, we have already failed because our representative, Adam, failed to do it. Therefore, we are born into it. And we see here in this that applies to the Christian is this. This applies to you if you are in Christ. The law will not draw you into the presence of God. Get that down. Your obedience will not draw you into the presence of God. It will not remove the barrier. And praise God for that. If I had to depend upon my own ability to come to the presence of God, I would only be in the presence of His eternal wrath, which gives us a better hope. See, it says it made nothing perfect. It, it, it never brings something to its intended end. And so God set up the law for something other than drawing us into His presence. If the law could perfect us, if the law could bring about perfection, then you have to recognize this, then Christ is not preeminent. If the law and the keeping of the law and you doing good things could garner your salvation, then there was no need for Christ to come. If the law was able to save you, then Christ is not most glorious. Christ is not the most exalted. Christ is not the conqueror. If salvation was possible by any other means than Christ coming, then Christ is diminished. So what the law could not do, God does Himself. We read in Romans 8.3, for 
God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. Did you hear that? This law that we say is is good and is really an act of God's grace to tell us what God desires of us, that cannot save us, that we're so prone to try to keep with all of our might Knowing we can't keep it, God does something we can't do. God sends His Son who will keep the law for us. Which is why we have a better hope. This is why, because in Christ we have a true hope, a lasting hope. And the word better is this, it means that something is superior. So you'll notice in verse 19 it says, but on the other hand, the law that could make nothing perfect, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. Something superior has arrived. Something better is here. The hope of the law, as we've seen, was only that which brought an awareness of sin. It brought death. It brought desperation. For when we look into the mirror of the law, we realize we have fallen short and we never meet its standards. That is what the law does, is it reveals our need. And so what we see here is something better, you'll notice the words, is introduced. Something better is now brought about. Like the previous verse, which indicated a new era has been brought about, this confirms something new, something different from the old has arrived. This is something that we have now that is sure, which is a better hope. A better hope is the anchor of the believer. You'll notice in Hebrews 6, verse 18 and 19, you should turn back up, page in your Bibles, it says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the anchor of our soul is what Christ has accomplished, and that is why we have hope. Our hope does not rest upon ourselves. It does not rest upon our ability, but our hope rests upon God who has accomplished something. If our hope was rooted in our own ability, we would have no hope. That's why it says a new hope has been introduced. Many have been, had their hope be a weak hope because they have trusted in themselves to merit salvation. How many do you know that are trapped in a false religious system that says, Sure, you're saved by faith, but it's faith plus works. 
How many of you know that have been that have been held captive and enslaved by that false gospel that says you can be saved by faith, but you have to do a little bit yourself. God meets you halfway and you have to come the other half. How many of you have been trapped in that false gospel? That's a false gospel. It gives no hope because all it does is show us how we fell. The gospel shows us how Christ has succeeded, how Christ has accomplished it on our behalf because we cannot. That's a better hope. That is the better hope we have. And that is the anchor of our soul, as we are told here. And this brings about the presence of God. It is this through which we draw near to God. God. I'm not of Jewish descent. I did not grow up in a Jewish home under the Old Testament law in the first century. The original audience did. I can't imagine what great hope that would have brought their hearts to hear the words they could draw near to God. Because you see, they're still standing in the temple shadow where they see the yearly sacrifices taking place by the high priest. And once a year, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people to hear these words that you can draw near to God are extraordinary words. In the Old Covenant, worshipers would come once a year while only the high priest would enter. They're standing off far in the courtyard. If they went into the Holy of Holies, they would have been struck down dead. And now to hear words like this, you can draw near to God in His presence without an earthly priest? Those are radical words. I think we, we miss, obviously, because we did not grow up in the shadow of a temple and an old covenant, we miss the radical nature of those words. Whereas we were separated from God, we're brought near to God now with no fear. Now in Christ, we have the presence of God within us. You know, the temple, it was, it was, it was built to be a place where God's concentrated presence would dwell, and always to be a meeting place between God and the people. And they had to go there to the temple to be able to go through these sacrifices and these ceremonies to meet with God. Do you know what the New Testament teaches us about the temple? We are the temple. And do you know what that means? God's presence is with us. Let me me give you an example in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That's That's a remarkable phrase. That you, that God dwells in you as a temple as the meeting place of God with His people, is you. 
He goes on to say, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. The amazing thing about this passage is Paul is writing this to people that are involved in all sorts of licentious sin, and he says, don't you know that you are the temple of God, meaning that the presence of God is with you always? How does Jesus fulfill his promise to be with us always until the end of time? By his spirit, dwelling with his people. And the dwelling place of God and his people is the temple. Who's the temple? You're the temple. You are the temple. The law could never accomplish this of bringing man and God together in presence of one another. There's some tremendous application for us that we have to consider. This is this, is we are in Christ. If you're in Christ, it, it means we have been brought into the presence of God. And that's an everlasting presence. Now, I want you to, to, to just hang on that idea of everlasting because there's incredible practical implications for your Christian life. You see, when I sin, oftentimes we will hear something to this phrase, or you have said this phrase, I don't feel the presence of God in my life right now. Or perhaps when suffering takes place, you might think that, Or, on the other hand, when it seems like you're really living faithfully to God, you might say, I really feel God's presence in my life. So there's those two things. When I'm being faithful, when I'm doing all the right things, I feel God's presence in my life. But when I'm I'm not doing all the right things, I don't feel God's presence in my life. That's what we say, right? But is that really biblically accurate? We're told this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, is that through sin we grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So yes, can we, does sin grieve the Holy Spirit? Yes, we can. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And how do we do that? Well, Paul tells them by walking as Gentiles do, through greed, every kind of impurity through deceitful desires, falsehoods, anger, stealing, laziness, corrupting talk, slander. You get the point. We can grieve the Spirit through those things. But let me ask this question. We may grieve the Holy Spirit, but do these things put us out of the presence of God? Because I think we would all admit sometimes we do say when we have sinned greatly, I don't feel the presence of God in my life right now. And when we do things right, we say, I feel the presence of God. But do these things make God's presence in our lives any less or any more? Do these things actually make God less close to us, either sin or faithfulness? So if I'm more sinful, less of God, and if I'm more faithful, I now have more of God. 
That's the question. There are times, like Adam, when you sin, you want to hide from God. Here's the reality. Like Adam, you cannot hide from God. You go back to this verse where it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It's amazing what Paul writes right after that to make it very clear he says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That same phrase of being sealed by the Holy Spirit, we're told in Ephesians chapter 1, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I may be able to grieve the Holy Spirit, but I can never remove the seal of the Holy Spirit upon me. You can never quench. You can never be kicked out of the presence of God. In other words, the presence of God is not based upon how faithful you are because the law cannot perfect anything. What does Paul write? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do you think Paul was thinking when he wrote that? Well, all of these other things cannot separate us from the love of Christ, but your ability to be a faithful Christian could separate you from the love of Christ. Do you think Paul thought that? Absolutely not. In other words, what we need to get down deep, and this is where Luther was getting at, this is how we doctors, is God's presence is not based upon your ability to channel it through doing good things. God's presence in your life is not based upon your faithfulness. It's not based upon your goodness. It never has and never will be. Otherwise, you would never have God's presence in your life. It's based upon Christ and Christ's work and Christ's work alone. This is why we see the law as weak and useless as and set aside for bringing you into the presence of God. Jesus has promised to be with his people by way of his Holy Spirit until he returns and is physically with his people. Now, does this mean I shouldn't strive for holiness? Does this mean I shouldn't strive to be obedient to the law and to be, quote-unquote, a good Christian? You must strive for holiness. You must strive for the holiness for which without no one will see the Lord. The point is, is that when you do fail and you will fail, you cannot slip into that rut of thinking, well, what's the point? I just keep messing up and God will not forgive me or I'm far away from God and it's, it's too late for me. I just have to give it up. No, if you are in Christ, the presence of God has been secured by Christ and can never, ever be forfeited. 
And the knowledge of this, I believe, is the very means that God drives us to not fall for temptation, to not fall into sin, because we have such a merciful and forgiving Heavenly Father, we have such a merciful high priest. Why would I ever want to act contrary to the new nature that I have been given in Christ? Why would I ever want to abuse what Christ has accomplished for me? In other words, I think when we come to an understanding that it's not based upon you, it's based upon what Christ has done, this actually motivates us. This actually drives us to pursue Christ all that much more because in Him we have everything and without Him we have nothing. The law brings nothing to perfection. Now this all assumes that if we are brought near to God only and in by Christ, If I'm not in Christ, I'm actually separated from God. So if I'm in Christ, I'm brought near to God in Christ. But if I'm not in Christ, I'm actually separated from God. You see, if you are not in Christ, you do not believe in Christ, you have not trusted in Christ by grace and through faith, there's actually an eternal gulf between you and God the Father. And you can't cross it. The law can make nothing perfect. If you are not in Christ this morning and you have not trusted in Christ, that there is a barrier there that you in your own strength and power cannot remove that barrier. That's what it means. And further than that, if you're not in Christ, you must, you must see the state that you're in even right now. In Romans chapter 2, In verse 5, we read this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Meaning that there's a wrath upon you. There's not only an eternal gulf between you and the Father, but there's also a current, right now, active wrath abiding on you and an eternal judgment that is waiting for you. In fact, what is that eternal judgment? It comes from Christ Himself. In Revelation 14.10 it says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured out full strength into the cup of His anger. And He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So... On the one hand, that verse teaches us something about God's presence. That God's wrath in eternity will be there before those and on those in an eternal hell. In other words, those that are in hell only wish they could depart from God's presence but they never will. 
And not only that, you'll notice what Revelation 14.10 says. It's in the presence of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Speaking of Jesus pouring His wrath out for all of eternity on those that have rejected Him. They will only wish they could get away from the presence of God. But the good news is this. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why we have a better hope. In Romans chapter 5, verse 11, it says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have right now received that reconciliation, meaning that Christ took that eternal wrath for you. That He has reconciled and brought peace and that through faith that peace can be yours and that you never have to question being in the presence of God. And so here's what I tell you is that if you're relying on your good works this morning, you'll have no hope in that. You won't sleep at night. You'll lay awake wondering, what will happen to me when I draw my final breath? But if you're in Christ this morning, I can tell you this, you don't have to worry about a thing because you have a sure hope, a true hope, a steadfast hope, a hope that will never depart just as God's presence in your life will never leave you nor forsake you. He will always be with you. What a merciful high priest we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to him for the salvation and the forgiveness of sins that we have in him and him alone. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your gospel, that in Christ we have been set free, that in Christ we have peace, and that by the shed blood of Christ, reconciliation has taken place. Father, we are grateful that we may draw near to the throne of grace because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Father, we know that we are also men and women that, that like to cling to the law, and that in that law we, we think we make ourselves feel good, but we, we're truthful with ourselves. We, we, we ought to acknowledge that it makes us feel desperate. And so remind us in our hearts anew, remind us in our hearts daily of the better hope we have in Christ and Christ alone. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Please.